1: Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, queers. Did you miss us? Welcome back to the second half of season two of Thesis on Joan.
2: And today we're featuring an interview with Ryan J. Cutter. Pieces on Joan is a podcast dedicated to amplifying voices from the LGBTQ plus community in the New York performing arts scene and examining the industry from a queer perspective. Join us as we sit down with groundbreaking theater folk from Brooklyn cabaret performers to people backstage and on Broadway.
1: For many queers, theater has been an escape. This podcast looks to have open conversations on where we've come from and where we're heading as a community while queering the canon along the way. How's it going Holly? It's good you know we're in recording this at the end of August and I am in Ohio for the next two weeks so mm. excited to be out of the city and uh, enjoying some like more nature backyard time which is great uh,
2: yeah you picked a good time i I hope by the time this comes out on September 8th it's not 90 degrees but
1: yeah. It is-
2: Stranger things have happened.
1: <laughs> it is also 90 degrees here, but it just feels more manageable in the Midwest as opposed to the city.
2: I know. I can't believe summer is like almost over but also like this year doesn't time doesn't feel real anyway so it sometimes I feel like this has been the longest summer I've ever experienced (laughs) or also like it just started so I don't know yeah
1: it's wild to me that I haven't been back to I haven't been in Ohio since last September October and I can't believe it's been a full year since then and yeah the same it feels so long and so short
2: yeah but I'm kind of like, as we said in June, you know, pride should be in fall anyway. So we're moving into our true season. (laughs) I'm ready for that. But, um, like looking back, what, what's been a fun kind of non-theater related thing that you've done this summer?
1: Sure. Um, I'm going to shout out a thing I actually did yesterday. (laughs) Um, but my, my friend, Sam came with me, um, to see Ohio and to see like my hometown. Uh, they've never, um, been here with me before and uh, they are also a giant like fantasy sci-fi nerd and they know so much more than I do. I've learned a lot from them. And we went to this place called Otherworld in Columbus and it's like uh, a museum gallery interactive art space um, (laughs) where it like immerses you in fantasy and sci-fi worlds. And it's like 40 different rooms that are kind of like mazed together with like secret doors that you crawl through or like, you push things and they open and it's all interactive. You like touch everything and like things do stuff. Um, it's a oh, lot of, it's so cool. yeah, it's so cool. Like the art is amazing. The set design is incredible. There's lots of like really cool projection work and lights. Um, Yeah. So if you happen to be in Columbus, Ohio, I highly recommend this. It's really fun. It's great for like the whole family. Um, if you partake in any illegal substances, I would say that would be pretty incredible if you did that before. <laughs> um, it is really, really fun. And yeah, if you like fantasy and sci-fi, it's going to be awesome for you.
2: I love a Columbus recommendation. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know my friends, Amy and Allie, listen to this show and they live in Columbus. So you guys got to get out oh, there. Great. They, they probably... Last time I was there, they took me to like glow in the dark putt putt. So, Columbus is nice. a lot of stuff
1: going on. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I can't, they should really bring this to New York. It would do so well there. Mm-hmm. It is a lot of touching for COVID times because you go and they're like, touch everything. And, oh gosh, but they do yeah. have like yeah. hand sanitizer in every single room. So, I had to just like prevent myself from doing it 50 times while we were there. But I was very conscious of like not touching my face. <laughs>
2: Yeah. You know, the new, especially as we hopefully see more like interactive theater, like walkthrough type theater. That's, that was like a good precursor to what that would, mm-hmm. what that would be. Yeah. Um yeah. Is it like a permanent thing? Is it, or is it's not a temporary installation? I think Do
1: it's you permanent. Know? It's in this like abandoned strip mall building. Like <laughs> it used to,
2: it might be the best part yeah, of it. Yeah. <laughs> it
1: looks a bit like you go and it looks very sad from the outside because it's through, like there's three giant department stores on, the other sides of it and they're all empty and closed and i don't know; it's like an old jc pennies or something that has been totally transformed into this like beautiful other world
2: (laughs) amazing that's so great
1: yeah what about you was the your best non-theater thing from the summer
2: i'm gonna cheat and say two because one might be like (laughs) that's your favorite summer thing it's just something that happened in the summer but um the first is uh before my partner, she's back now, but she was on tour for a bit. We just like spontaneously like went up to um, Harriman State Park for a day and did some like kayaking and just like brought beers and food and like sat by a lake. And it was so great. Wow, that <laughs> it was awesome. Just, like, so relaxing. Like we kayaked for like, we even like took breaks during kayaking. Like I kind of just like took a little sit up nap uh-huh. like, halfway through, which is great. Um, so that, that was fun. Hopefully some more good fall outdoor time, um, coming up. And then this is the one that's not summer related, but it's brought me so much joy is I, um, have treated myself to the Marvel Unlimited comic book app. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful on an iPad and. They just, every week they add more of, like, the back history of Marvel issues, and I have so many to-reads saved. And it's just been, I feel like mentally my summer reading game has been off, so this has been a good, like, alternative is reading these issues. But, like, I'm in the middle of the Captain Marvel series. They just are releasing some new Valkyrie ones that are super queer. Yeah. And, um... Yeah, it's it's just been really fun to explore all those. And my little sister is actually in a, like, real college class that is, like, deconstructing Marvel and, like, classical tropes and things that appear in the Marvel universe. So um excited to, like, get her syllabus and oh, see that's what's awesome. recommended. Yeah, so that's been fun.
1: That's so cool. I feel like comics have always intimidated me because it's so it seems so vast and i don't even know like where to start but yeah i I think you were telling me that there's like read this if you like this character um and that sounds like a great entry point
2: yeah i've loved that because there is this like uh, you pick, you can pick a character and it will just show you all their appearances. So even if it's like a character that doesn't show up that often, they're like, oh, do you, did you really like when Peggy Carter was like Captain America in the series? Then like, here's the time she randomly appeared it in these three different issues. So you don't have to like sort oh, through sweet. every Captain America. Yeah. So it's, it's really well organized. So whoever Marvel is doing that, like, it's awesome. Uh-huh. Um, I think they've they got me hooked. It was just going to be like my summer treat and I think it's going to stay amazing. So, <laughs> yeah. So this episode's action of the ep is encouraging you all to go out and support your queer spaces. I know that we've talked about a few times throughout the summer as we've had the chance to check out some really great queer spaces that aren't necessarily um well in my case places I don't typically get to go. So this summer I got to visit my friends in Columbus. Another Columbus shout-out.
1: the Columbus (laughs) episode. Oh, too bad Brian's not from
2: Columbus. (laughs) Oh, that's true. Okay, so it's a very Ohio-centric episode. Uh (laughs) (laughs) So I got to go to Slammers, which is a lesbian bar in Columbus, and it was great. We were there after a big, like queer kickball tournament happened so everyone was like moderately tired from kickball and drinking many beverages (laughs) um and i also got to go to sue ellen's in dallas texas which is in this doing air quotes gay neighborhood (laughs) neighborhood is in quotes it is maybe two blocks um but it's this like very historical area called the crossroads that uh has been very pivotal for Texas, like um, queer visibility. Yes. So it was, it was really cool to be there, and it's huge. I was talking to the one bartender, <laughs> and I was like, "Your bar is so big; you could fit every lesbian bar in New York in that bar." And she's like, "It's a problem." She's like, "It's too big. We
1: don't need this much Aww. space."
2: Um, but yeah, so that that was awesome. Um, and then Holly, you've had a chance to check out some bars this summer too, right? Yeah.
1: Well, I just went. Mansfield Ohio still in Ohio to this is my hometown's uh gay bar that definitely did not exist when I was growing up here but I discovered it a few years ago and it's like the cutest little tiny like dive pub and every time I go there's usually not more than like five people there but it's like you get to talk to people and you and get to know people who are in the, from the area which is really fun um but I'm just so glad it's here and it exists oh especially because this time when I was driving around uh, on like the main highway in Mansfield, there's this giant sign that says, um, it says homosexuality is, Oh God, hold on. Let me find it. Oh, and, this
2: is so disappointing. Yeah. I was
1: so shocked. Cause I've never, I mean, it, there's definitely homophobia here, but it, I've never seen like a billboard. Not so
2: blatant. Yeah. yeah.
1: And it's a, it's a fairly large billboard that you can see from the highway, and oh yeah, it says homosexuality is against God's law. Um, cool. Yeah. And it's really close to the gay bar. And I know they also just had like a gay pride parade, um, in like early August. So I wonder if that also had to do with it. Um in mansfield, in mansfield, mansfield yeah. Had their own. yeah yeah, oh wow, um so yeah, it looked tiny but mighty, and yeah, so it's disappointing yeah. to see that sign, but yeah, if you happen to be in Mansfield, Ohio, also support Sammy's or anywhere like close to there, it's great, uh, and I also then want to shout out Alibi, which is um in my neighborhood in New York in Manhattan and Harlem um it's a black owned gay uh bar that uh, is really lovely. And they've, I know like they've had their pride flag burned a couple times um, and, you know, also suffering through the pandemic. So support those folks if you can.
2: Yeah. The past year and a half has been tough for all small businesses. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think I was talking to, again, the bartender at Sue Ellen's and she was telling me that Um, We were there the third week that they'd been open. They had just been able to reopen safely and like financially in in July. So just want to encourage you to check out the queer spaces where you live. Fall is a historically, as we know from theater, fall is a historically bad time for ticket sales. So it's a historically bad time for people going out to eat, you know, Mm -hmm. shopping, doing all the fun stuff that we like to do. In the summer, so if there's a queer space that you love in your hometown, please support it. Um, and if you want to find out where the other lesbian bars are, you can check out lesbianbarproject.com. There's 21 across the whole country. I feel like I need a little passport and like get all the stamps
1: (laughs) (laughs) for them.
2: Um. They were doing a fundraiser. I, it just recently ended, but I mean, give them, give them your money directly. Yeah. That's great too. <laughs> so, and if there's a, a place that we should know about, um, we'll post on social and you can share with us your favorite queer, queer hangs or queer, um, entrepreneurs to support. Yeah.
1: And you know, our action of the up this episode is telling you to go hang out in your local queer space. So I think should hopefully it's doable. <laughs>
2: Best homework. Ryan J. Haddad is an actor, playwright, and autobiographical performer based in New York. His acclaimed solo play, Hi, Are You Single?, was presented in the Public Theater's Under the Radar Festival and continues to tour the country. Other New York credits include My Stradies, Noor and Hattie Go to Hogwarts, and the Cabaret Falling for Make-Believe. Regional Theater includes The Maids, Lucy Thurber's Orpheus and the Berkshires, and Hi, Are You Single?, at the Guthrie Theater, Cleveland Playhouse, and Williamstown Theater Festival. He has a reoccurring role on the Netflix series *The Politician*. Additional television includes *Bull*, *Madam Secretary*, and *Unbreakable*. Kimmy Schmidt. Haddad is a recipient of IMA Theater Company's Shonda Rhimes Unsung Voices Playwriting Commission and Rising Phoenix Repertory's Cornelia Street American Playwriting Award. His work has been developed with the Public Theater, Manhattan Theater Club, New York Theater Workshop, Berkeley Repertory Theater, North Theater. Ralston Playwrights Theater, Primary Stages, and Pride Plays. His writing has been published in the New York Times, Out Magazine, and American Theater. Ryan is an alum of the Public Theater's Emerging Writers Group and a former Queer Art Performance and Playwriting Fellow under the mentorship of Mo Angelos.
1: Ryan, thank you so much for being here on Thesis on Joan. We are ecstatic to have you on the podcast. Um, We usually start with our guests having sharing their name, their pronouns, and whatever you want to share about how you identify.
0: Hi, I'm Ryan J. Haddad. I go by he, him pronouns. I am an actor, playwright, and autobiographical performer. I'm a Lebanese-American gay man with cerebral palsy.
2: And you mentioned in your bio, you're an autobiographical performer. Was that something that you always wanted to do? Did you always want to create autobiographical work? And what inspired you to kind of take that first step?
0: I think that I was always doing it as a kid. And I didn't know whenever we get to the personal narrative Assignment one a year in grade school. I was like, this is so much fun. I love to talk about me. (laughs) And I would always get the best grades on those assignments. And then I did, I was just reminded of this over the weekend at a family event. I had a newsletter called the Ryan Head Ed Monthly and then the Ryan Head Ed Quarterly. And that, (laughs) uh, that lasted for about uh, three years as the monthly and three years as the quarterly from 10 to 16. So I was doing this in different forms. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if I was going to be a journalist. I didn't know if I was, everyone said you should be a theater critic because you want to write and like theater. And I was like, no, uh, I'm not going to be a theater critic. But in college, there were sort of two things that happened. One was I took a class called writing essays in the English department. I was a double English and theater major. And, I thought writing essays would be like how to make a peanut butter sandwich or (laughs) the history of the Roman empire or something. And I learned that essays was a legitimate genre that didn't just come around once in once a year in grade school, but that you could write personal narrative as your whole career. Uh, And so then I thought that I was going to do that. And then in my sophomore year, it sort of all coalesced because the, um, theater department, one of my favorite professor, Dr. Ed Kahn, brought someone named Tim Miller, who is a very famous internationally acclaimed queer performance artist, solo performer, who's been doing it since the late 70s, early 80s. And he does these things he did, but does, I mean, the pandemic is changing how everybody works, but he goes around to colleges and teaches workshops in autobiographical performance. He does not call it that, but that is what he's doing because he is extracting from your personal life and making you tell a story on the stage. So that is what it is. And his workshop is what put me on the trajectory to write plays that are first-person autobiography pieces of theater.
2: Was there an initial one that you performed, like the first one that went from page to stage?
0: The first thing I did in his workshop was a three-minute piece, it, probably five minutes. It's hard <laughs> for me to observe rules, uh, but it was supposed to be three minutes. And it was about sort of the expectation of being an actor, the expectation of being an artist on the stage and basically the barriers placed in front of me, not by my own skills or talent, but by the people, the adults, whether it was the professors at that particular university or, you know, acting teachers going all the way back to my childhood who were, were going to, put me in a corner and say, this is all you're able to do because you walk with a walker on stage. And so I did a piece about sort of trying to break out of those boundaries and live authentically or perform authentically with my body as it is, which includes when I'm walking uh, a walker. And so that was, A very short that was the I guess would be the first in the set of workshops and then I did four workshops with him that uh, before I graduated college so over the next three years I continued to basically study with him and he's the one who said you need to do a full-length piece and that full-length piece was my senior capstone and is the play that I still continue to tour and perform Hi Are You Single? Um, which is about sexiness and disability and trying to date or have sex or everything in between those two, those two things. So the, I guess the answer to your question is, hi, are you single? But it isn't like that's a show that is a 20 year old relic that I, I don't dust off of the trunk. It's something that I, still perform and will perform continuing in the years to
1: come. I'm, I'm going to jump Megan down to the question about how are you single? Yeah. Uh, we, we watched the Willie Mammoth production uh, online and it was, it was beautiful. Um, so you performed this for over four years ago in the, under the radar festival and you continue, like you said, performing it now, how has it evolved over the years? And does it feel different doing the show now than it did in 2017?
0: Right. So 2017 was sort of still midway through the journey. I mean, I was doing it, it, I performed it in the studio theater at my college before I graduated, and that was in 2015. So it's been six years at this point, over six years. And what I can say is that every story that was in the original performance, production, at school is is still in the play, but they've been trimmed and tweaked and tucked thanks to my wonderful director, Laura Savia, over the years who's acted both as director and dramaturg and made room for more stories. So I didn't cut any stories, but I cut a lot of time in order to get back up to the original running time of an hour with new, richer, deeper, more mature material that I hadn't amassed in terms of life experience uh, when I first performed it at school. And even some of the stories in the later part of the play in which I start to, the tables turn and it goes from me being radically discriminated against to me rab- radically discriminating I don't know why I said the word radical, but in either case, but, you know, the tables turn, And especially in this last production for Woolly Mammoth, we really sort of dug into, okay, now I'm 28. I was 28 at the time we filmed it. And my reflection on this sort of, era of Ryan being an asshole (laughs) has to (laughs) has to evolve along with me as an adult and, and really sort of you know confront my own prejudices instead of not that I was sweeping under the rug I mean I had done the show for years and people within the marginalized communities that I was depicting in those scenes would come up and say thank you thank you for your honesty and thank you for telling a part of our story that often doesn't get told within your story. However, um, you know, Maria Manuela Goyanes, who is the artistic director of Woolly Mammoth said, you know, I know that you have more to say. I know that there's a way to deepen this and, and kind of cut to the chase a little bit instead of, instead of, trying to be too delicate, just go for it. And so I went for it. And that is, I'm hoping who, who knows, but I'm hoping that that was sort of the last major rewrite and that now I can just memorize that script as it is, because every time, every time we change words, it's like, Oh my gosh, I have to learn it all over again. And, And so, uh but the writing is it's it it feels completely different. it feels completely different than six years ago and somehow also exactly the same
2: and to that point i I know like personally well something Holly and I were talking about was like the show also made us very nostalgic for like being at a gay bar or just Mm. like these, you know, basic, the scene where you dance with the member of the team is like Mm -hmm. seeing that, you know, this past year, what was it like performing a show about that's so much about making connections in a time when that is so difficult in the way we traditionally think about it?
0: I think with all, like all good art, all good pieces of, of work, Um, even if not a word had changed, the time in which it's being viewed affects the way the audience reads it and affects the way that I perform it. And, you know, from 2015 to 20, early 2020, not we had Donald Trump, but other than that, not much had like changed in the world in a way that was was significant enough to affect the way the story was being told or seen or read by an audience and then we have this pandemic and it's like oh my god um this is a whole play about making connection and we can't connect as a species we can't connect as a society and suddenly it takes on all of these meanings that of course I didn't intend in my uh, dorm room when I was writing it in college or in the coffee shop where I was trying to meet a deadline. Like, never could have predicted that, and yet somehow the timing and the intersection of that particular performance made it so there was so much more there. And what I think I was learning through disability Twitter and disability uh social media throughout the pandemic was so many people of the disabled experience are isolated in bit ways that are big and small, particularly socially especially romantically and obviously the play is has always been about that it's been about I am this, but I want this and I can't have what I want because the world doesn't see me as desirable or sexy or romantic or capable of romantic love. That I always knew, but there were all these wonderful tweets uh, and all these wonderful posts that were like, you can't conceive of staying in your house for two, three weeks at a time, four weeks at a time. Well, hello, this is what disabled people live with every day and that in itself that sliver isn't really part of my own experience I have a very active life I'm very mobile I do walk with a walker but I go here and I go there and I travel and I do all kinds of stuff but that isn't a universal experience for disabled people and so the play suddenly also gets deeper from the activist lens of disability because the audience has just experienced what the character was always experiencing. And now I, as the actor, realize that my, I don't know, I told myself in the shower before I started that my answers would be sure, but
2: (laughs) keep going. It's great. Yeah.
0: But I, you know, I had a richer understanding as the playwright and as the actor that, wow, you know, it it isn't just about I want to go to a gay bar and I want to find a date and I want to make out with somebody and I want to hook up and I want to fuck. I don't know if you can say that on the Broadway Podcast okay. Network. <laughs> um, it's, it's, there are, some people don't have a choice but to be confined to their homes and it isn't, and I never would want to say confined to a wheelchair. I never would want to say wheelchair bound or anything like that. Nothing that is uh, demeaning in terms of people and their movement through the world, whether it's a physical disability or mental, emotional, social, cognitive, all kinds of, there are different ways in which we as disabled people or deaf and disabled people are isolated, but, I just had a stronger sense of that isolation, particularly for my community, even if, you know, the degrees to which I experienced that in my daily life aren't quite the same. Because we're not the same. Disabled people are not all the same. Deaf and disabled people, totally different. There's a huge, giant, vast spectrum of, of experiences there, and yet my place somehow people have found to be universal, whether or not they're disabled. Uh, and so I think it was made even more so by people sitting in their homes, watching me on a computer screen or casting it to their television and seeing that moment where I dance with a member of the production team who, you know, in a normal production would be a stranger from the audience, would not be a member from, of the production team, but in this case had to be in order for us to preserve that dance. We talked so much about, you know, is anyone going to want to be two feet from anyone else? And Lawrence Moton III, a gorgeous human, also beautiful scenic designer and costume designer for this, this particular run at Wooly Mammoth, he and I had the longest history on the production team, aside from my director, Laura, who uh, wasn't physically there because of COVID. And we had a co-director who was wonderful, but Jess McLeod, also a brilliant director, but (laughs) neither of whom are male identified. Like I couldn't, it had to be a man. And all of us thought like, we have to find a way for this to happen. There's no way to approximate a dance. There's no way we had thought, like, do we stand eight feet apart from each other and just talk? Do I, you know, the lights come up and I talk to the 11 people there wearing masks in the audience? No, we needed that physical connection. And so, you know, before we even started, Lawrence had to consent to, yes, I will do this. These are the protocols. This is how we'll make sure that it is safe. And it is a three minute sequence on camera, but it, you know, took months of planning to make sure that we could achieve that one scene. Uh, This is so boring for anybody who has not watched the show.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, it's fascinating. (laughs) And how much work goes into, you know, this one moment, but it's definitely one that has stuck with me since seeing Mm -hmm. the show. So yeah, all that, all that backstage work is definitely worth it. Um, yeah and thinking about you know your newer work um we're really sad to have missed the the dark disabled stories at restart stages that just happened uh from when we're recording last week uh can you tell us a bit more about your newest autobiographical work and when we can all mark our calendars to see it again uh we did see a tweet that said we'll see you in 2022
0: i did do that because i'm covert (laughs) um (laughs) Dark Disabled Stories is different in tone and different in form. I think most of my pieces, uh, whether they're solo pieces or not, have, you know, the architecture of of stories that are threaded together in a certain order to create a quasi-narrative where there might not. I, like, impose a narrative onto it so that it appears like a plot, quote-unquote. I'm certainly not a plot driven writer by any stretch of the imagination, but this sort of takes that and runs a million miles with it because these stories are truly about just the lived, my lived experience as a disabled man walking around living in New York City, navigating the world and encountering strangers, some in romantic and sexual context and some not. And being faced with how do they see me and how do I see them? And what are the assumptions that we make about each other in these flash moments of we have never met and we probably will never meet again and yet we have these intense interactions and I, you know, fill in all the blanks of what I believe their lives to be and I believe that, you know, I take that to be, quote, the truth and then they do the same for me even though I know that what they're thinking about me is not correct. And so then I have to imagine and investigate, you know, what do I, how does it work in the reverse? And so it's about a series of encounters with strangers in a world that is incredibly ableist, right? We know that the world is ableist and I don't, necessarily face ableism in my life until I am put in front of a stranger, you know, because if it's a best friend or a close friend or an acquaintance who knows me or a family member, like there could be little microaggressions here and there, but for the most part, they get it. They get what this is. They get who I am. And the strangers don't. But I also don't get who they are. So, dark disabled stories is, it doesn't try to impose any kind of narrative. It's just sort of rapid fire boom, 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 boom. And if you don't like one story, don't worry. It'll be over in five minutes. And we'll be on to another one that is completely unrelated, right? <laughs> um, and so, it's a swirl of a narrative. I said, it's not a narrative. Okay. It's a swirl. It's like a tornado of, of stories that are not as funny as my other works are, which is part of the point. You know, I'm not going to add a layer of humor all the time. There are many funny moments in the show, but I'm not going to add a layer of humor all the time just to make, disability more accessible to non-disabled audiences Uh, I do want to make it more accessible to disabled and deaf audiences and so in full production which we are aiming to have in New York in the summer of 2022 pending some money that needs to be raised um, if you're a commercial producer listening to Thesis on Joan and want to enhance my production with the Bushwick Star which I don't even know if I should have announced
2: that. <laughs> um, My gasp says no, probably. <laughs> I love huh? book stuff. What? I gasp, so that probably means no. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes,
0: but, all the but money. But it's <laughs> the summer of 2022. So we're aiming, to make it, we're aiming to make it more accessible in a variety of ways. So the design of the production will... Will be pretty minimalist in terms of set but there will be projections the whole time and the projections will have artful captions of every word that i say there will also be uh audio description live audio description of all the movement and the stage pictures and the lighting and the costume and the and 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 the video images that we're going to have and all of that and the audio description is to serve the blind and low vision audience members And then there will also be a another actor on stage with me who is a deaf person who will be playing the role of Ryan alongside me, who is playing Ryan and the deaf person will be giving their own unique performance of the same text, but in American sign language. And that is obviously completely different than my other work. And, you know, uh, I can't say that I will be able to achieve that level of radical accessibility with every piece that I make for the rest of time. But for this particular one, it just felt, you know, I gave it the title Dark Disabled Stories and why not? We kept, we spent years going, well, what's the world? Am I sitting around a campfire? Am I in a walk-in closet like Carrie Bradshaw? Like, what does it look like? And then we realized it doesn't have to look Like anything, the look and the design can be to advance um, access in an inclusive and, and integrated design, you know, and that design, we hope, will also encourage Deaf and disabled audience members who would not normally attend a Bushwick star show or an off-off-Broadway show or an off-Broadway show to come and to feel and to be represented in a way that never purports to cover everyone's experience, but somewhere in this hour plus, you will find something about yourself um, and, and, you know, I'm not I'm trying not to give in to the non-disabled lens here and to really just say we're going for it. There's sign language, there's captions, there's audio description, and there could be other elements of, of access and inclusion that I'm I'm not thinking of right now. Uh but that is what we're aiming to do. Also, why we need to raise some more money because access is expensive access being expensive is never an excuse not to have access you need to make access a priority and put it in all of your budgets for all of your productions and make theater uh accessible truly not just in a monetary way but in a way that is says you are welcome here uh, both for audiences and artists and practitioners alike And that is the end of that speech. Um,
2: (laughs) A wonderful one, though.
0: June of 2022, produced in association with, no, produced and presented by the Bushwick Star in association with a theater to be announced at a location to be announced.
2: That's so exciting. (laughs) If we have to cut that, let us know. (laughs) But We're very excited (laughs) to be sharing that news.
1: Um, And hopefully that sets such a precedent for the rest of the, the theater industry too. Like, this is exactly how you can be more accessible. Here's how. Just do it.
0: Right. And I mean, I've already given myself an out. Like, I don't know that I will do Hire You Single in that form, you know, in terms of having all of the points of access happening at the same time at every performance. Like there, and I I don't also want to feel that I have to hold up that mantle as an artist every single time because there are certain plays. I have a family play that is multi-character with seven actors, including myself, in which I'm still playing the character of Ryan, but it's about, it's a gay generational story. And, you know, seven actors plus, three modalities of access at the same time, probably not going to happen. But there are still ways where you can meet in the middle, right? You can have more audio described performances. You can have more captioned and ASL performances. Like You don't have to do one per run or two per run. You could do one per week or something like that. Um, but in this case, I said, well, I want to do it for this show. And it's not going to say that that's the version of access that's true for every production at every theater, but it's a way of, it's a way of offering and sharing space that I think a lot of disability arts field practitioners and, uh, people and collectives and initiatives have, they've been doing this for years and decades. And I learned about it through them. I did not learn about it through theater. Primarily I learned about it through dance from people like Alice Shepard and Kinetic Light and Jeron Herman, who I just adore. Um, beautiful, wonderful disabled artists who Had to show me what was possible in a live performance space because theater had never offered me that. And so I said, well, why not, why not give it a try and see what it's like to put that into practice? And in the process, the audio describer will be a, you know, another disabled person performing live every night and Uh, obviously the deaf actor is a deaf actor. So that is also, I'm talking about employment of other, of other deaf and disabled artists within the context of an autobiographical show about a boy named Brian who happens to be gay and horny and walk with a walker.
2: And I feel like that's, even as you were saying that you're like other forms of accessibility that I just don't know about. I love like hopefully more theater people see that and be like, okay, there's not like two boxes you check. And it's like, this is accessible now because we did audio captioning or like one sign performance. So it's like, just, you don't even know the realm of accessibility that needs to happen in many instances. Correct.
0: And I keep saying about this show as we try to, you know, dance around and beg people for money. Um, I'm calling it, it's radical accessibility, certainly in a, in a, from a theatrical standpoint, but it is not universal accessibility because nothing I do or you do or any of us do can make, uh, will cover every individual's individual access needs. It just can't, you can't do that. Um, you never know. And so then you also have to be open to somebody calling and saying, "Well, I need this. Do you have that?" And then if you don't have that, you know, hopefully you have a really good producer who who is takes that as great. We need to provide this for this person and um and moves forward instead of sort of balking and saying, "No, I'm sorry, we can't accommodate you," which happens all the time to especially in theater spaces to people who just want to be a part of the community and or are part of the community, are artists themselves, and are often excluded from what we would, what I would call, you know, mainstream theater, Broadway, off Broadway.
2: And you've done a lot of work in the TV world as well. Do you, what is the difference there?
1: (laughs) 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 <laughs> there um, is an amazing hair suite yes for folks that can't
2: sweep. <laughs> it was fantastic um but yeah just comparing those worlds do you do you feel a lot of the same things when you look at the tv world or how has your experience been different
0: you mean in terms of
2: In terms of, uh, well, I guess just personally, do you prefer one over the other? But continuing continuing (laughs) that discussion of kind of the changes you've seen in the dance world and trying to bring those over to theater, are there similar things in TV that theater could benefit from adapting?
0: Well, I think, you know, most cable channels, streaming channels, network broadcast channels have, captions that you can turn on and off uh especially major streamers now have audio description tracks for their original uh content like that stuff is there you have to you have to seek it out but it is there it's not all the time you know it's not every studio or every you know but uh, i know like People, my friends who work in those kinds of access modalities are getting hired by, you know, major production companies, major streamers, major networks to make programming more accessible uh, for those who need it. And that's very exciting from an audience perspective. I think what we need more of, of course, is content about those people and about the lived experiences of deaf and disabled people told by deaf and disabled people and not through a lens of, you know, saccharine inspiration or tragedy or trauma or all of these sort of things that Hollywood puts on disabled lives and disabled people and disabled bodies and minds, you know? So that is where I think the progress needs to be made. And that's true of theater as well, but I didn't even get into the sort of programming of theater. Uh, But Hollywood is sort of most guilty of it because everything wants to be a Hallmark card. Everything wants to be a tearjerker. And most of the time it's like, the disabled character is there to make the non-disabled characters who are the centers of the stories feel better about themselves or feel good because they did an act of service or make the non-disabled audience members go, oh my gosh, isn't it wonderful that my life doesn't suck that much? Because our lives don't suck. You know, maybe some people's do. Mine doesn't. I I, I want to see more stories of people who's like have... Joy, like I want to see disabled joy and to tell the truth about the fucked up ways that our government and the society and America treats disabled people and forces them into poverty and all this massive, the reality is there, but we're also not seeing the reality. You know, if, if we are being shown trauma, it's not because this is the truth of the trauma that is inflicted on us by the government or by the country it's oh my gosh i had an accident and i will never be the same like no and they don't want to tell the true stories because then they have to they implicate themselves then they have to be held accountable for for the the drama of the real world Instead, they want an easy story that they can tie up in a bow and bring out their tissues for um, and that is not great that is bad and <laughs> happens all the time uh oh dear oh my do I even want to oh no there was a big well there was a big moment on on uh, a big moment on Twitter about a week or two ago with, I don't know when this is coming out, but there was an article in the Washington Post that was about the women who don't get paid to care for their disabled male partners or former partners. And it was a completely ableist story in which the disabled people had their voices almost completely erased and were treated as burdens. And isn't it sad for these women that they have to take care of their men? There are so many problems with this story, mostly because it was very heteronormative and suggested that only male people get in accidents and become disabled. And also, you know, continues to perpetuate the notion that we are burdens to society and that like People's lives would be better off without us in it. Now, I'm sure the author of this Washington Post piece, which I who I tweeted at several times, um, uh, would 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 argue otherwise about the piece that she seems to have spent months creating. But why such a piece in a really prominent journalistic publication? would not be told from the perspectives of the disabled people when the issues that are actually being raised in the piece are about the issues plaguing the disabled community by the United States, but our voices aren't in that story. You know, we are the afterthought. The disabled people are the afterthought, which also is one of the themes of Dark Disabled Stories, my play. There are a couple of stories in which you, at the beginning of the story, you think that this is a story about a disabled person and then it actually isn't. And it's about the ways in which the non-disabled people around them, the strangers around them, are confronting what it is to just be in space with another disabled, with with a disabled person. And it's like, but wait a minute, this isn't about you. This isn't supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be about me, or that's supposed to be about that disabled person, or that disabled person. Why are you making this about yourself? And it felt, that's why I felt this very long, long article in the Washington Post was like, and and a uh, lots of um, entertainers who I really respect and admire, Mason Zayed and Shannon DeVito, in particular Shannon had a wonderful tweet. Um, I just feel weird talking about tweets like they are um like, like they are Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, entities. Um, but Shannon and May were both like, what the fuck? Also, this article is the reason why Hollywood does what it does. Because these are the narratives that society tells us about ourselves. And it also underscores this whole article underscores the theme, not to continue to bring it back to me but of how are you single that like we're not worthy of love because why should someone, especially another, a non-disabled person, why would, why would somebody ruin their lives by loving us? Of course I don't think they're going to, and I don't want you to use that soundbite. I hope nobody takes it out of context. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> the point being like the reason that so many of us have trouble finding love is because, Everyone else is told like, stay away from those people because those people can't add value to your life. And that couldn't be further from the truth. People are really missing out on some great, deep love and fabulous sex, if I might add. And I know I can't believe that I ended that segment (laughs) with that sentence.
2: That was the best way to end it.
0: So I'm just trail. I'm just covering my ass now because I got brought it. Somehow I started thinking about sex, and that is was nowhere to be found in the story. By the way, it was like all these couples, and they seem to have no sex lives or any sort of intimacy. And it's like, oh no, please no, no. Now um, I know
2: why I know about it because I saw it on your Twitter. <laughs> now that you started to describe it, I was like, oh, God. Okay. you like, I'm...
0: he's talked about this art. I talked about no, my no, show no, for like 20 that. minutes and nobody's seen that. <laughs> I talked about this article that nobody had read.
2: Um, no, unfortunately, I, like... I think too many people read that article. For so I'm sure. glad that you're talking about for it. For sure. Yeah.
0: Okay. And I want to say something um, a friend, a dear friend, a social media friend who I've not yet met in person but who I just adore Ryan O'Connell obviously has made his own show about being a gay man with cerebral palsy. And I think that he, you know, would join me in lamenting the fact that it is ending after two seasons, womp, womp to Netflix and the studio that produced it. Um, and that is one story. There are a bazillion stories. That need to be told, and what we don't want—what Ryan would say—he doesn't want because Ryan is in other writers' rooms, writing for other shows, and creating more of his own series and more stories about, you know, different points of view. There need to be more. There needs to be more than one. There always needs to be more than one. That's the fear. When the fear and the joy, the fear and the joy, when the extraordinary Ali Stroker wins her Tony Award. You know, we don't want Broadway to sit back and go, well, we did it. We're done with those people because she won. Isn't that amazing? We did an amazing job because she won. No, she did an amazing job, and she has more talent than any of you have, right? Any of you in the audience with your suits on going, yay, you know, and oh, oh, I'm so happy that we gave her the No, she earned the fucking Tony. She won the Tony, and continue to cast people the way that she was cast in that revival of an old relic of a musical that could completely be reinterpreted and was made so much better by her inclusion in it. And there's so many ways to do that in both new work and old work on stage, on screen. And there can't only be one there just can't because you know, that means that a whole community of people that have been truly erased from media and popular culture for centuries, but I would say a century if we're talking about media media in the uh contemporary sense of moving images and and theater and stuff um, you know we just haven't existed on stage or on screen, and so then. When there's one, everyone has to watch and find their representation in that one person. And I can tell you, Ryan's story is different from mine. And I can tell you that Allie's story is different than a lot of my friends who use wheelchairs. Like it's an, and it's an enormous responsibility for one person to carry. They shouldn't have to carry all that responsibility. They're artists trying to make art. They're trying to make a living. They're trying to make art. They're trying to make change. We're trying to all do that. But, you know, once Hollywood meets one person, they think that that's the only one that exists and the only story that exists and the depravity of stories that we've really endured um, needs needs to change and needs to explode and there needs to be all kinds of dis- deaf and disability options and there needs to be radically designed and radically written pieces and works and series and miniseries and movies and theater that says, you know, we are worthy of your attention and our stories really matter. And are interesting, and way more interesting than your boring, stale, trite, Hallmark cards that you put us into, not to point directly to the Harm Rock Channel, which is not what I'm doing. You can.
1: (laughs) Thinking of dating and love with disability and how Hollywood has just like made that so difficult for disabled folks, uh, in your show, you've said you need someone who is emotionally and mentally sexy enough, quote, to approach you. And can you share a little more about what that means and how we can all work towards being emotionally and mentally sexy?
0: That was in a Huffington Post video. It was not in one of my plays, but thank you. Um, I was just like, that would be good to put in a play, but I haven't. (laughs) Um, Do it. (laughs) uh, It means, like, the ability to look at me and go, wow, I want to fuck him. Also, I want to cuddle with him. Also, I'd like to hold his hand at a family funeral or, you know, walk down the aisle or, like someone who can see that they can build a life with me or build a life with one of my friends or build a life with another deaf or disabled person who I've never met. It's not a, doesn't have to just, you know, like you're welcome into our lives. Welcome to you. And it's not to say that it has to be sort of one disabled person, one non-disabled person, or one deaf person, one non-deaf person. I mean, a lot of people do find love within the deaf and disability communities. But I also think that that's a story, that's a, that's a trope that we've been told the only people that we are allowed to fall in love with are other deaf or disabled people. And that is not um, just, that's not reality. Well, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't, and it doesn't need to be that way. But we're not the ones who are, you know, wanting for people we find attractive. The problem is, is that even if we are the sexiest disabled person that ever lived, you know, aesthetically, what is considered to be sexy, it's that the world at large looks at us and automatically erases any ounce of desirability and sexiness. And therefore they don't even want to approach you at a gay bar or approach you on an app to say, hello, how are you? You know, do you want to make out let alone hold your hand at a grandparent's funeral or um, be your date to a wedding or introduce you to their mom and dad or, parents or extended family, like I would like to build a life with someone and I need someone who can look at me and not immediately think I will be out of place in their life. You know, Mm -hmm. I think that that is what I mean. It's like, we all have a vision. I think of what our futures are supposed to look like. And part of the struggle that I face, I think, and other deaf and disabled people face, is that not enough people can envision us in the picture of their futures. Now, I'm a person who really has the problem of, if we go on a first date and it's good, I'm like, great, um, and I'm registered... At William Sonoma. <laughs> and the and the linens will look like this. <laughs> and we have to have this. We're going here for our honeymoon. Like, you know, I I want that future so bad that sometimes I oftentimes, most of the time, every time, <laughs> I I I run too far into that future because I have this fear, which I think a lot of disabled people do that it isn't going to happen, that somebody isn't going to be emotionally and mentally sexy and see that we can have sex as many times a day as I want or they want. And we can really deeply, deeply love each other. And all of that is possible. It's just about what you're willing to even consider might be part of your destiny, if you want to use the word destiny or future. And yet again, another monologue. Thank you so much. I'm really bad at this form.
2: No, it's great, Ed also i i mean i've definitely been that person on dates too so i appreciate you articulating that (laughs) sometimes i like forget the person and skip to the honeymoon it's like oh yeah (laughs) excited for all of these things that it will bring
0: how will he look like next to my brothers in a family photo like (laughs) will he get along with my nieces and nephews like it's like Come, my niece. Right, what are we gonna wear
2: at Christmas? They don't even know. They don't
0: even know I'm gay, and I'm like,
2: (laughs) what will they
0: play with him?
2: Like, how will they be? (laughs) (laughs) Something to think about. (laughs) Oh my gosh! Uh, And then, just because I mentioned it, I have to ask: we're both from Northeast Ohio area as well. So, what are what's your current favorite? It doesn't have to be gay, I guess. Just favorite thing in Northeast Ohio. Thing <laughs> or place or thing, place,
0: person, place, thing, idea. Um, <laughs> uh, East Coast frozen custard.
2: I've never been there. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm Googling it right it's now. It's so good. And why is
0: the East coast when we don't, Right, it's not the East coast. It's the North coast. Um, But it's in it, Cleveland. Yes. It's so good. I live for it. Also honey, honey, honey hut is also good.
1: Honey, honey hut is also good. good.
0: But, um, but so yeah, I would say that it is the ice cream. And I think you, you asked what a gay thing. Um,
2: custard could be gay I guess
0: <laughs> well I, I think I did eat east coast custard over in, uh, on the east side by my gay uncle's house the night that I told them I was gay there anyway anyway, He's in
2: the canon now <laughs> um,
0: a couple things to say I think you were about to ask about my favorite gay bars well there aren't very many anymore No, they're mostly gone um, I reference cocktails heavily in Dark Disabled Stories Twist is uh seen in Higher You Single. Also in Higher You Single at the end, when I encounter the person from The Lion King, who the actor from The Lion King, uh, you know, because I've fudged with time a little bit and it comes near the end of the play, I think people assume that that's a Broadway actor from The Lion King in New York. It is not, it is an actor from the National Tour of Lion King. Uh, and it was at balance in Cleveland, Ohio, that, which is, I, I think it's gone, but then I think it came back, but then it's might be gone <laughs> again. Like unsure and not, and, and none of this, by the way, is related to COVID, which is sad. It's just, you know, gay bars oh, are yeah. dying in the Midwest. Um, and, um, that was actually one of the first chronological stories to happen, in my life that was, you know, that, that led to Hire You Single as a play. And so as I was building it, it was, how can I, you know, what stories do I tell in what order to get to and to earn that moment with the man who was an actor in The Lion King, um, even though it happened before almost anything else happened, uh, which is just a behind the scenes. Um, so custard and the only gay bar that I really would go, like if you said, let's go to a gay bar in Cleveland in the year 2021, <laughs> it would be twist. It would be twist. Um, cause it's That's sort awesome. of homey and relaxing enough, yeah. but also sexy enough and, you know, not filled with too many. Demons of the past.
2: <laughs> I haven't been a twist in a, a while. So here's the I'm thing cute. about
0: here's the thing about being gay in Cleveland.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's another episode.
0: <laughs> at any moment, at any moment, like anytime you go anywhere that is a gay or queer space, you will, without question, encounter a person that you never. Wish to see again? Like it's like, oh well, there he is. Oh my god, I thought we were through. Oh, I'm so embarrassed. I can't believe they're having to see me again. And it's like it, it's because there there are so few spaces, and the, obviously the population is much smaller than it is in New York. And you know that's true of as a late twenties gay man, but also I have. Queer relatives who are, you know, of a different generation that are out there looking for love just as much as I am. And like I don't want them to leave Cleveland because I want them to be around our family, but I also am like, well, maybe your person is not in the state of Ohio. Yeah. Like strong possibility that that you could you could you might find them if
2: you go on vacation you've run through all the ohio options for sure yeah.
1: like i'm about to be in ohio next week so i'm gonna check out the custard and oh! i'm
0: pretty wait a minute about where because ohio is not it's not like it's not like we're not talking about like rhode island we're talking about
1: <laughs> i grew up in mansfield ohio, oh so just like an hour away yeah, from yeah, Cleveland. Yeah.
0: you can find an east coast you can find an east coast, yeah. coast and custard.
1: One of my my best friend from growing my childhood is in Cleveland, so I usually go visit him anyway.
0: People would be irate if I didn't say Jenny's ice cream, but because I went to school it's like everywhere now, <laughs> I went to school near Columbus. Um, but I was just so I'm such a like my sexuality is East Coast custard, so. <laughs>
2: i gotta go oh my gosh if it's I'm really excited better now. than honey hut that's some strong words so, so no
0: i i mean i that's my opinion but it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that it's correct
2: yeah have I'm you seen like twitter lately
0: so <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh i'm glad we were able to do that thank you for indulging me on the northeast ohio talk <laughs> So we were talking about the kind of reimaginings of, of shows. And is there a dream role in a queer version of a show that you would like to play? And this is mostly inspired because we saw your video of singing being alive and we wanted to hear more about that or other dream roles that you might have.
0: Oh, thank you so much. As we know, Bobby is a tenor. And so that will never be me. And (laughs) also uh, we do know because Roundabout tried to do a gay male version of Company and Sondheim saw the reading and was like, and N-O. oh, uh, Alan Cumming was Joanne, I don't remember who was. Um, the gay Bobby. But I didn't
2: realize he officially said no. I remember th- I know it they got did stopped. Their, but...
0: I mean, they did the reading and then it didn't mm-hmm. happen and it was like, no. But oh. now but now we have a gender bent company. We which can is, have
2: a lady company.
0: <laughs> no, loving it. Love that. Love yeah. that. And I'm honestly like, I'm it's frankly uh, as a gay man, this might be horrible to say, but it's frankly more exciting to see that told from a female perspective than it is a gay male perspective. Um, so I'm, I'm fine to never be Bobby, but I would happily be Joanne. Um, no, the answer to your question, were my dream roles. Now I don't want other people to go and steal these roles or do the revivals <laughs> and win the Tonys. <laughs> I want these parts. Okay. This is true. Um, this, I probably will not do in New York because it was just in, in New York with the brilliant Gideon Glick, who gave the best performance I've ever seen in my life. And uh, I saw it twice in 48 hours, Significant Other. So I will do that uh, by Joshua Harmon, Significant Other. The reason is because that was the most I felt, the most represented I'd ever felt by any work of anything. It had nothing to do with disability at all. It's just, that is my life. The boy watching the best friends all pair off and feeling like he has no one left and he has no family um to call his own he has family but he doesn't have his family that he made um and i was so moved by it i'll do it in any regional theater in any venue i don't care if it's 52 seats i will go to it um so please contact my representatives um but in terms of bigger scale dreams, I want to play the MC and cabaret. I want to play either of the male uh, lovers in La Cage aux I want to play the man in chair and the drowsy chaperone. Yes. Um. I would love to do uh, Pryor or Roy in Angels in America. Um. Maybe both if there's time. Um, and, uh, I've always said this and it's so complicated, it's so difficult, um, because it's written to have disability in the play and it isn't this character, but I've always wanted to play Tom in Glass Menagerie. And so it would be, have to be a very, um, evolved production to be able to hold space for both Laura and Tom to be disabled. Maybe it ends up being the whole cast is disabled or something. Um, but that's, and you said a queer version. I mean, when I was a little kid, I did the queer versions of so many of the, of so many of my favorites. I, at the age of 13 with the Hadad Theater, which was my family production company, um, I played Ed in All About Ed, uh, instead of All About Eve. And I played Andy <laughs> in Annie in Andy instead oh, wait, of Annie. So, I've been there, done that with the gender bending. Um, I, would love did- to play, I would love to play Margot Channing, but they don't seem to know how to... anyone. No one seems to know how to put that on the stage and do it well. Um, it always sort of fumbles. And it's sad because it's one of the best screenplays ever written. Um, and... Ooh, I'm trying to think of one more that I would want. I would want to queer. Oh. oh, nobody wants to see me do this, but I would do. Um, I nobody wants to see me do this. Um, <laughs> but I, I would play. I would love to do um, Gypsy and play, uh, play the male version of Rose.
2: What would your name be? I, still Rose.
0: Uh, in the shower in my youth, it, the name was Joe. I know it's not quite. I mean, what is Mama it? Joe. What do we say? Bose? Like the stereo speakers? Like it can't. <laughs> you
2: can't Sponsored by. It can't quite. <laughs> <fight. laughs>
0: no, but I also, I mean, if there was a, if somebody else, I, I would be more appropriate to play Gypsy right now. So if somebody else is in the wings to play the male, Madame Rose, um, Cool. I'm ready for that.
1: Wow. I, I want to, all of these to happen and I want to see all of them. I can't like pick one that's the most exciting. No, I yeah. can't.
0: Cause you asked me for one and I was like, let me tell you a story.
1: They're all so great. <laughs> um, but then switching to our queer culture, Rex, uh, what, what's your current queer culture indulgence? It could be like a TV show or a movie or a book or an event.
0: Well, I just bought tickets to see uh, Meg Stalter in the New York Comedy Festival. And we know Meg Stalter as Hi Gay. You know who that, You We all know. <laughs> and also uh, Kayla on Hacks. So I missed her show at the Bell House in New York. And I bought tickets this morning, pre sale tickets to. And I bought two. I'm very single, so one of my friends is probably going to just raffle it off and see which friend draws <laughs> that straw that, that day, unless a boyfriend materializes by November. And let me tell you, I've been trying. I've been trying. And um, I've opened my heart to four different men in the year of our Lord 2021, post-vaccine, um, four different opportunities um, for me to say, I will be your boyfriend and they all said we should just be friends so none of them are going to see Meg's daughter with me and I maybe it will be um, maybe there will be a lover around the corner if there isn't which is more likely um, I do have a spare ticket to see Meg um, and you could DM me if you wanted but I don't I truly don't promise to respond
2: (laughs) we can definitely we we had a previous guest who was also looking for love and we uh framed that up in the episode description so we can make sure that people know that you're on the market hi i'm still
0: single (laughs) that is not what the sequel is called the sequel has been written but it's not called that (laughs) and it's not Doctor Zip stories either we'll get into that next year when you have me back on the podcast
2: Yes, after we that. get
0: to see dark disabled stories, okay. I know you'll be, you'll you'll be very scared for my well being after that show. Oh, no,
2: if you wanted to shout out um, your friend for our queer give section, um, my
0: friend is not queer. I'm just going to say I don't think my friend is queer. Maybe they are queer, uh, but it is, appears to me that they're in a hetero presenting relationship. They are a. a A brilliantly fabulous, hugely beyond brilliant disabled person who's who's had a huge social media following for years. I only discovered them in the beginning of the pandemic and felt absolutely stupid uh, for not having been on the train earlier. But Amani Barbarin, Amani Barbarin, uh, Crutches and Spice, various handles across Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, and the first of her TikTok videos that I saw was like somebody had written into a major publication, I think it was the New York Times, that was like, can I um, you know, can I break up with my boyfriend now that he's in a wheelchair? And it was just her like, walking into frame and like, staring at the camera like, what the fuck? And Imani (laughs) Imani is so funny but also um, deeply, deeply intellectual in the sense that, like, and thought-provoking. I've been a proud, empowered, disabled person for a long time. I won't say all my life because I didn't always have the tools to be as proud and empowered as I am now. But Amani just comes at issues that don't always even present to, you know, uh, purport to be about disability at all. Uh, And frames them in a way that really just expands my understanding of the disabled community and the disabled experience beyond myself. And Amani is a black woman and so also is constantly talking about the intersection of of disability and race. And um, just in a way that blows my mind in the absolute best way every single time I read a tweet or an essay or a post or watch uh instagram video uh and for the most part their their social media and website is very very accessible in all the ways that the internet can be accessible and so um i just think they're so brilliant and i want them to you know rise to fame and stardom not that they're not well on that trajectory but i'm just obsessed with them and i want more and more and more imani and I know Amani has a Patreon and once a month or so she tweets that out to to contribute and I can't think of a better um writer, artist, communicator, member of society than Amani to um shout out. And I know that this is a thesis on Joan podcast, I know that it's queer as fuck, but I I that's where my heart is. <laughs> um Amani is my heart. Amani and I also have never met, much like Ryan O'Connor. We haven't met, but we've been very friendly across the social inboxes. Uh, and I just think, wow, wow, wow. Thank you to Amani for expanding my knowledge of what it means to be disabled.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the disabled community intersects with the queer community. So we're all helping each other. <laughs>
0: uh, it does the queer community wouldn't necessarily always think so, but it does thanks to the, and I would, I want to be fair. Queer people have been more accepting than gay people, but in general, it's easier to be a uh, gay or queer in disabled spaces than it is to be disabled in gay or queer spaces, online, mm-hmm. offline, everywhere. Um, so There's work to be done friends, um, and get with it when it comes to disability, because we are a part of you, even if you would rather run away from us.
1: And how do folks follow you online?
0: I am at Ryan J Haddad. That is R Y A N H A D as in dog, D as in dog, A as in apple, D as in dog. Um, and that is on Instagram and Twitter. My Facebook page is a personal page so far. Um, There is a page for Hire You Single. And so you can like that if you want, but I haven't posted on it in a while. You can go to my website. You can go there if you want, but I haven't updated it in a while. Um, And if you go to my Facebook, I would just say, my personal page, click the follow button, unless we've actually met in real life. Um then you can try to add me, but I just can't guarantee that I will accept it if you're a complete stranger. And by that I mean, I won't, but there is a follow button for a reason.
2: <laughs> totally fair. <laughs> well, for all the hot takes and all the info about the new shows, I know I very much enjoy following you on, on Twitter. So highly recommend. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here, Ryan. This is. Was- so much fun it was a great experience and i i'm just like sad summer 2022 is so far away but we'll we'll get there eventually we can see some more of your new work hi are
0: you single we'll be back at woolly mammoth live in um early april 2022 if that is not as far away it is the truly same production that you saw on film but it is live if you want to do a little uh day trip to to um to dc and you know i would be remiss to say to mention willie mammoth without talking about uh their upcoming productions of teenage dick by mike Lu, which is a wonderful piece of uh disability playwriting and a strange loop by michael r jackson the pulitzer prize winning musical which is bound for broadway they say uh and but having a quote pre-broadway uh, engagement at Earth in DC absolutely one of the best things I've ever seen in my whole life don't miss it if you did miss it in 2019 I'm sorry but fortunately you're going to have other chances
2: wow I think I just have to move to DC I don't think I realized <laughs> all of that was in the season yeah it's <laughs> going to be a lot of road trips for us I think so awesome well thanks again this is so great Yeah, thank you, Ryan.
0: Thank you. Thank you, darlings. It was so wonderful to meet you and chit-chat.
2: Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us and share us with your friends.
1: We'd love to hear from you. If you have any queer culture recommendations or other ideas about how to queer the canon, you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 845-445-9251 or email us at thesisonjoan at gmail.com.
2: And you can follow us on social. We're on Instagram and Twitter at thesisonjone. Until next time, keep it queer. Not that it'd be that hard for y'all to do. <laughs> Also, we have the same glasses.
0: Warby, <laughs> yeah,
2: Warby, Warby Parker. Parker. Minor yeah. Warby, Warby Parker, too. <laughs>
0: the Remy. The Remy. The Remy
2: with the blue. You got to yeah. do it. Okay. <laughs> I was well, like, yeah, gonna... yep, that's exact. Yep.
0: <laughs> I guess I'm the third co-host now. So.